Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi everyone, my name is Paul Frank, and today we'll be discussing the laparoscopic ovarian cystectomy case from our upcoming textbook, Anesthesiology and Critical Care Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls. Okay, so here's our case. A 32-year-old woman is undergoing laparoscopic ovarian cystectomy. She has smoked one pack of cigarettes per day for the last 12 years, and she reports a history of severe nausea and vomiting after a repair of a tibial fracture. She is otherwise healthy and takes no medications. Vital signs show blood pressure of 124 over 70, pulse of 82 beats per minute, respirations 10 breaths per minute, oxygen saturation 100% on room air, and her temperature is 36.9 degrees Celsius. What risk factors does this patient have for postoperative nausea and vomiting, known as PONV? These can be organized into three categories, patient factors, surgical factors, and anesthetic factors. Patient factors that increase the risk of PONV include a history of postoperative nausea and vomiting, female gender, age less than 50 years, non-smoker status, and history of motion sickness. Surgical factors that increase the risk of PONV include laparoscopy, orcopexy, gynecologic surgery, ear surgery, and intraabdominal surgery. Anesthetic agents that increase the risk of PONV include nitrous oxide, halogenated anesthetic gases, things like sevoflurane and desflurane, and opioids. Other anesthetic factors include prolonged duration of anesthesia and general anesthesia as opposed to regional anesthesia. So as we can see, our patient today has quite a few risk factors for PONV. One protective factor is she is a smoker. And while that is by no means good for her, it has been shown to be protective against PONV. What prophylactic options are there to prevent postoperative nausea and vomiting? Well, we've got a wide range of pharmacologic uh, agents that can help prevent postop nausea and vomiting. We've got serotonin antagonists, things like ondansetron, glucocorticoids like dexamethasone, uh, dopamine antagonists like droperidol, neurokinin-1 antagonists like a prepotent, uh, anticholinergic agents, things like a scopolamine patch, alpha-2 adrenergic agonists, things like dexmedetomidine, uh, gabapentinoids, uh, benzodiazepines, propofol, and actually intravenous hydration. Adequate intravenous hydration has been shown to help prevent postoperative nausea and vomiting as well. 
the patient is nervous before surgery. What can you do? Start by reassuring her. Have a conversation explaining the anesthetic plan. Ask her what her concerns are and do your best to address her concerns. If she's still anxious, you could consider a small dose of benzodiazepine, something like Versed, or even a small dose of dexmedetomidine or propofol. Before you give any chemical sedatives, though, make sure that the consents are done first. The surgical consent and the anesthesia consent both need to be signed before the patient receives any sedatives. You will induce general anesthesia with propofol. What is the mechanism of propofol? Propofol works via agonism and potentiation of the GABA-A ligand-gated chloride channel. It also works as an inhibitor of the NMDA glutamate receptor. How is propofol metabolized and eliminated from the body? Propofol is primarily metabolized by the liver, however the kidneys and lungs also contribute. Metabolites of propofol are inactive, means they do not cause sedation, and these inactive metabolites are eliminated by the kidneys. You proceed to the operating room. After preoxygenation, you administer propofol. The patient closes her eyes and stops breathing. You then administer succinylcholine. She begins twitching and then stops. What's going on? Well, these twitches are actually called fasciculations, and they are seen commonly after administration of succinylcholine. Succinylcholine is a depolarizing neuromuscular blocker. It actually binds to and activates the nicotinic receptors at the neuromuscular junction. And this activates muscle fibers and causes the fasciculations that we see. After the fasciculations stop, the patient will remain paralyzed until the effect of the succinylcholine wears off, which is usually about four to six minutes in healthy patients. Intubation is uneventful. Five minutes later, while the patient is being prepped and draped for surgery, her blood pressure is 76 over 44. What's going on? Why did her blood pressure drop so much? Well, induction of general anesthesia results in a decrease of sympathetic tone. This results in a decrease in systemic vascular resistance, SVR, and a decrease in preload, decreased venous return to the heart. Both of these factors result in decreased blood pressure. You can treat this with a bolus of intravenous fluid or a bolus of ephedrine or other vasopressor. Her blood pressure returns to baseline after a small bolus of ephedrine and the operation begins. During insufflation of the abdomen, her heart rate drops from 80 beats per minute down to 35 beats per minute. What's going on? Well, insufflation of the abdomen can occasionally cause bradycardia. The mechanism is this. Stretch of the peritoneum causes a parasympathetic discharge via the vagus nerve, which results in a decreased heart rate. Again, this is known as the vagal reflex and is mediated by cranial nerve 10, the vagus nerve. So what should you do? Ask the surgeons to release the insufflation. Then treat with an anticholinergic agent, something like glycopyrrolate or atropine. The surgeons release insufflation and you administer glycopyrrolate. The heart rate normalizes. Repeat insufflation is uneventful. Over the next 15 minutes, the pulse oximeter reading, the SpO2, drops from 99% down to 88%. What is the differential? The differential diagnosis of hypoxia in laparoscopy includes endobronchial mainstem intubation, effectively as the diaphragm moves cephalad towards the head, the distal tip of the endotracheal tube can migrate from the trachea past the carina into either the right or left bronchus. Other items on the differential include hypoventilation and atelectasis, bronchospasm, ventilator circuit disconnect or accidental extubation, 
pneumothorax or capnothorax, which can be caused either by direct diaphragmatic injury or by carbon dioxide from the laparoscopy dissecting through the soft tissue planes and entering the pleural space. In extreme cases, this can result in a tension pneumothorax. And of course, we always consider pulmonary embolism on a differential of hypoxia. So what should you do? Start by increasing your fraction of expired oxygen, your FiO2, to 100%. Auscultate the lungs, confirm that breath sounds are present bilaterally, and check for wheezing. Ventilate the patient manually using the reservoir bag on the anesthesia machine to assess compliance. You can give a recruitment breath, give positive pressure, say 30 centimeters of water, and hold it for 30 seconds to help recruit possibly collapsed alveoli. Place a fiber optic scope through the endotracheal tube and identify the carina. Confirm that the tube is in the trachea and not in one of the main stem bronchi. You can check the patient's chest for crepitus, which is a gas-like popping sensation that you can feel over the anterior chest if carbon dioxide is dissecting through the soft tissues. Look at the patient for signs of neck vein engorgement or tracheal deviation that might suggest a tension pneumothorax, and you can always ask the surgeons to release their insufflation. You listen to the lungs. Breath sounds are present on the right, but absent on the left. There is no crepitus, and the trachea is midline. What should you do? These findings are most consistent with main stem intubation. Slowly withdraw the endotracheal tube until breath sounds can be heard bilaterally. Then, pass a fiber optic scope down the endotracheal tube and ensure that the distal tip of the endotracheal tube is proximal to the carina. If you're still unsure as to whether or not the endotracheal tube is in the correct spot, order a chest x-ray. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. What are the hemodynamic consequences of abdominal insufflation? Abdominal insufflation causes compression of the inferior vena cava, which reduces venous return to the heart and hence preload. Abdominal insufflation also increases SVR, systemic vascular resistance. The net effect is a decrease in cardiac output and an increase in mean arterial pressure. What are the ventilatory consequences of abdominal insufflation? Abdominal insufflation is achieved with carbon dioxide. It is a clear inert gas that works well for laparoscopy. However, carbon dioxide also diffuses into the bloodstream quite readily. This increases arterial carbon dioxide tension, PaCO2. Elevated PaCO2 results in decreased systemic vascular resistance and increased pulmonary vascular resistance, PVR. Additionally, elevated intra-abdominal pressure causes cephalad displacement of the diaphragm, which results in decreased pulmonary compliance and increased airway pressure. In other words, the ventilator has to work harder to deliver the same tidal volumes to inflate the lungs. 
Cephalad movement of the diaphragm can also result in collapse of uh, alveoli, particularly in the lower segments of the lungs. This results in atelectasis. Additionally, as we've discussed, there's a risk of endobronchial intubation as the respiratory tract is moved cephalad towards the head and the endotracheal tube moves into the right or left bronchus. What is hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, HPV? This is an adaptive mechanism designed to minimize ventilation and perfusion mismatch in the lungs and to reduce shunting. Essentially, there is vasoconstriction of pulmonary vascular beds where the associated alveoli have a low oxygen tension. What is shunting? Ideally, ventilation, V, and blood flow or perfusion, Q, are equally matched throughout the lungs. However, this is never the case. There is always mismatch of ventilation and perfusion in the lungs. Shunting occurs when there is too much perfusion relative to the amount of ventilation. In other words, Q is greater than V. The net effect of this is hypoxia. Examples of shunting include pneumonia, atelectasis, mucus plugging, and endobronchial intubation. What is dead space? Well, dead space is the other side of the coin. There is too much ventilation relative to the amount of perfusion. In other words, V is greater than Q. There are three causes of dead space, anatomic, physiologic, and pathologic. Anatomic dead space comes from ventilation of the conducting airways. We must ventilate the trachea to get air into our lungs, even though no gas exchange occurs there. Physiologic dead space occurs in parts of the lung, usually the apical or top parts of the lung, where there is excess ventilation relative to the amount of blood flow. Finally, pathologic dead space can be caused by a pulmonary embolism. Okay, back to our patient. You withdraw the endotracheal tube 2 centimeters and the pulse oximeter improves. It's now reading 99%. At the end of surgery two hours later, the patient does not have any twitches on train of form monitoring. You have not given any paralytics since you gave succinylcholine prior to laryngoscopy. What's going on? The effect of succinylcholine should last about four to six minutes in healthy patients. First thing to do is to rule out drug error. Make sure you or someone else did not accidentally give the patient a dose of succinylcholine or some other paralytic. Next, you want to check for other causes of prolonged paralysis. Check electrolytes to rule out hypocalcemia, hypermagnesemia, or hypophosphatemia as these can result in muscle weakness. Hypothermia similarly can cause muscle weakness, so you want to make sure that the patient is warm. Assuming you've ruled out drug error and you've ruled out other causes of prolonged paralysis, this is concerning for pseudocholinesterase deficiency. How is pseudocholinesterase deficiency diagnosed? Well, taking a step back, normally succinylcholine is metabolized by pseudocholinesterase that is circulating in the plasma. Patients with one or two abnormal alleles for pseudocholinesterase will have a prolonged duration of effect of succinylcholine because abnormal pseudocholinesterase does not metabolize succinylcholine. So the way this is diagnosed is via the dibucane assay. So dibucane is a local anesthetic that inhibits the activity of normal pseudocholinesterase but does not inhibit the activity of atypical pseudocholinesterase. So the lab takes a sample of the patient's blood and add some dibucane to it. They then measure the activity of pseudocholinesterase in that sample. The dibucane number is a measure of the percent inhibition of pseudocholinesterase. So patients who have two normal genes for pseudocholinesterase will show about 80% inhibition of pseudocholinesterase by dibucane. So their dibucane number is 80. 
patients with two abnormal genes for pseudocholinesterase will show very little inhibition of pseudocholinesterase activity by dibucane. They'll show about 20% inhibition. So the dibucane number of a patient with two atypical genes, homozygous atypical, is about 20. Patients with one normal gene and one abnormal gene will show a dibucane number of about 50. That test though, the dibucane assay, is a send out test. It usually takes days or weeks to come back, so it won't help you right now. So what do you do? Well, you cannot reverse succinylcholine. You cannot give sugamidex. You cannot give neostigmine glycopyrrolate. You have to let it wear off. So assuming you've ruled out other causes of paralysis, such as electrolyte abnormalities and hypothermia, the answer is supportive care. You have to keep the patient intubated and ventilated while the succinylcholine wears off. An important point here, the patient may be fully awake even though the succinylcholine has not worn off. So it's critically important as long as that endotracheal tube is in and as long as the patient is paralyzed, you have to keep them sedated. And you can do that with anesthesia gas in the operating room. You can do that with a propofol or fentanyl ever set infusion postoperatively. But you want to avoid that uh, dreaded paralyzed but aware uh, scenario. Beyond the pearls, nasogastric tube placement obesity, and administration of supplemental oxygen are not risk factors for postoperative nausea and vomiting. Propofol does not inhibit HPV, hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. Anesthetic gases, things like sevoflurane, have been shown to inhibit the HPV reflex to some extent. The vagal bradycardic response that we saw with abdominal insufflation can also be caused by pressure on the eyeball, manipulation of the uterus, laryngoscopy, manipulation of the carotid sinus, traction on the dura, and even patient anxiety. Obese patients have increased levels of pseudocholinesterase circulating in their plasma, and they therefore require larger doses of succinylcholine. Dose succinylcholine based on their total body weight and not their ideal body weight. Modern practice is to give just one dose of succinylcholine at the beginning of an anesthetic. Repeat dosing or an infusion of succinylcholine risks a phase 2 block. After administration of succinylcholine, it is good practice to wait until twitches return on train of form monitoring prior to administration of another paralytic to rule out pseudocholinesterase deficiency. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about this and other topics, buy our book. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.